I, I want to know, like, I want, I want you to think about something with me, and, and that is that there are certain questions when posed to us that we know if we get right are going to change, like, everything, right? Questions in life out there, like, uh, uh, will you marry me? Might be one of those. Do you want the job? Questions that we sit with and we're like, if I answer this right, it's going to have a massive impact on who I am. And clearly my beard's getting a little bit, a little bit out of control here because it's kicking up the microphone. Uh, these, these questions that, that really change things if you sit with them right. Uh, some questions are so deep and so complex uh, that we just feel completely unqualified to respond or we need the person asking to give a little bit more clarification. And this is one of those moments in the Gospels. Jesus asks a question uh, that is a really big deal. And I believe that, like, this is a question that's worth betting the house on. If we get this one right, it changes everything. But Jesus doesn't really, in my opinion, intend for people to respond right away. It's a bit of a rhetorical question. We've been looking for months at questions that Jesus asks. And often he'll ask a question and he'll receive the response. But this time, he asks a question, and then he responds himself. Because really, when it all boils down to it, he's the only one that's qualified to answer this question for us. It does not, however, stop us from bringing our own ideas into what it might be. And the question occurs in Luke, and it's surrounded by two stories that if you've been around the church, even around our church at LifePath, we've talked about, but from different angles than what we're going to do today. So there's this story. And, uh, and it's a story about the nature of God's kingdom. And so the question that Jesus asks today is, what is the kingdom of God like? So just a little question. A little question. Because Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom of God. Spoke of it over 90 times, mentioned it in the Gospels. It was, it was his theme. That was what he came to do, was to proclaim the kingdom, to explain the kingdom, to initiate the kingdom. Like every verb that you can put in front of the kingdom was what Jesus came to do with the kingdom. Okay? Kingdom meaning the place that God reigns, whatever it looks like, where God is ruling. That's the world. It's not, it's not future only, but it includes that. It's not present only. But anyway, so he says, what's it like? And before we look at the answer, because the first word is then. Then Jesus asks. So before you read it, I'm taking it away. Before you read it, you have to ask, well, what happened right before it if we're about to say then Jesus asked? And so what happens right before this is a story of a Sabbath day healing. If you're familiar with the Gospels, then what that means is that Jesus healed somebody on the day of Jewish rest, okay? Um, it was, it was uh, something that is not supposed to be done because you're supposed to be at rest. And apparently, healing is regarded as work. Now, Jesus takes issue with this. Because Jesus seems to have the attitude that when good is being done in the name of God, to say that you're not supposed to do good on some day seems to be missing the point a bit. So he, um, he heals this woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years is the way that, that Luke describes it. And she straightened up. She was able, she was physically healed. She started praising God and people get really upset with her. Um, and they say, the Sabbath, the synagogue leaders said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on one of those days, not the Sabbath. Do you, do you feel like you'd just be embarrassed? Like, like your cards are showing so much as a religious leader if you're like, I know you've been sick for 18 years, but 
you should come back Monday if you want to be healed. Like, this is clearly a bigger issue that's going on. The, the religious leaders, they're just grasping at straws because they're upset with what Jesus is doing. And here's what Jesus is doing. He is shifting the center. Big, big deal. So, there's this kind of, oh man, I have to spell in front of you all. Is that right? Okay, thanks. So there's this religious activity that is what all of the Jewish faith has kind of been, been organized around all this time with the temple and the sacrificial system and, and the rules and regulations and rituals. That's what religion is. Sits of rules, rituals, and regulations to get back uh, okay and good standing with God. And it often revolves around the elite and the super holy. And Jesus is he's shifting the center of where God works and how God works to places outside of the center of religious activity. So he's shifting it to the common people. He's shifting it to the day-to-day -day moments. On the road, we're told over and over in the Gospels, on the road, Jesus went, and then something miraculous happened. And he ran into somebody, or he noticed this, and he had compassion, and he was out in a field, and he was over across the, the sea, and all these moments that are outside of the center of religious activity. So physically, he's outside of the center, but he's also shifting the center. And of course, where the real center is, is where? It's wherever Jesus goes. That becomes the new center, wherever Jesus goes, okay? So it's, it's really always consistent. But the religious people don't like this. I think what's, what's really great about this story in Luke 13, right before we head into the, the little uh, three sentences that he gives us for today, or two, um, is, uh, is he, he comes down hard on, on the religious leaders. They get all upset, and then he says, listen, on the Sabbath day, if you have a donkey that's tied up, it needs water. You're going you're gonna to free it and send it to water. This woman was tied up. He uses the same language, tied up with this, this illness, and I, I set her free, and you're thinking that your donkey is more important than this woman is kind of, and they get upset, and the people love it. The common people are just having a blast. All of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted uh, with the wonderful things he was doing. So that's what happens. And then the next sentence is this, okay? So we have this moment where Jesus is shifting the center, and then he says, what is the kingdom of God like? All right? And he tells two stories that we're, you're going to probably be familiar with. What is the kingdom of God like what shall I compare it to? You'll notice that he doesn't say, what is the kingdom of God? It's so beautiful and big and complex. It's like God's very heart that you can't hardly even figure out words to describe it. You know the best things that you can, like some things are so big that all you can do is come up with a metaphor for them, right? You know, love is one of those concepts. We can't really say what love is. We can say what the types of feelings are. We can say what falling in love feels like, or we can say what having a deep love for a family member or a friend feels like, but, but you can't really find the substance to describe it. So here's what he says. He gives two little tiny stories, all right? The first one, he says, what, can I, what should I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the, per and the birds perched in its branches. Okay. Pretty simple, I mean, little underwhelming of a story for this kingdom of God that he's been talking about. And then he goes on, and again he says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took 
and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. All right. So we've got two stories here. One man, one woman. It takes place in a garden and in a kitchen. Everyday moments. Everyday normal activities, right? Um, nothing, nothing shocking at first glance, which means that we need to ask more questions, right? Got to ask more questions. So what's so profound about the kingdom that Jesus is trying to get into our heads, all right? Um, before we go into mustard seed and yeast, I, I just want to let you know that that word, and this is from my wife's study this weekend that she enlightened me on, but that word took that Jesus uses, the Greek word is lambano, and it means, it means to, uh, to grasp something, all right, and to make it your own in order to use it. So in the image here, God is not the guy planting mustard. God is not the woman kneading dough, but people are the people doing the things. Taking this kingdom and owning it and figuring out a way to use it to work it out somehow. Okay, so we have to ask then, what's unusual in these stories? What should stick out? What does it mean then? What's it mean for us? All right, so let's start with mustard, and I'm, I'm going to hit this one um, pretty, pretty quickly because I've spoken on it before. It's fascinating, but I want to get to, uh, to what the meat of this is for this morning. So anyways, planting mustard seed not a big deal. Like, okay, a guy plants mustard seed in his garden. Uh, it'd be one thing, in the scriptures, they would often talk about how the kingdom in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was like the cedars of Lebanon, all right? This massive, gorgeous tree that people would travel far and wide to see, powerful, big, huge branches, and that the eagles, which, would, which represented the, the great nations of the world, would come to rest on its branches. That's the image that we get that Jesus has in mind when he's talking about something growing and birds perching in the branches. Two problems with that. Number one, mustard seed isn't a tree, it's just a bush. And if an eagle tried to land in that bush, the eagle would crush the bush and land on the ground. It's, it's not strong enough for that. That's not the kind of strength Jesus seems to be getting at. So here's the thing. Mustard can, I've, I've seen these plants, they can only grow about six, maybe ten feet tall, you know, this mustard seed, but guess what? They are invasive, <laughs> like crazy. There were Jewish laws that said that you could not, you were not allowed. Oh, Jewish gardeners, very meticulous. And there were Jewish laws that said you couldn't plant mustard seed in a garden. Why? Because once it's planted, it gets out of control. In a couple months, mustard seed will blanket entire hillsides. They just spread. Their seeds blow in the wind. They pass from one acre to another. And before you know it, it's unstoppable and it's too big. So the kingdom is like a guy who goes out and plants mustard. It doesn't look like much at the moment, just a few plants, but as time goes by, something happens. It's almost invisible until it's out of control. That's what the kingdom is like, right? So that, this is the first image that we're given. Um, there's cultivation, though. He's planting it with intention. Normally, these things, uh, these things don't happen like that. It's not instantaneous. It takes time, right? But each plant contributes together to the ongoing mustard seed explosion. All right, so let's move on then. Next, next view. Okay. What shall I compare the kingdom of God again? Jesus says, it's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Now, there's something that we're going to get to in a minute that should be like, 
well, that's peculiar or that's interesting. But the first thing I want to talk about is yeast. In the Jewish culture, um, if you're familiar with them, you will know that bread is typically what? Unleavened, which means leaven and yeast are the same thing. So uh, because of a number of things, leaven is not used typically in Jewish baking, only every now and then. Um, yeast was... Uh, the, the reason is that because of the ceremonial understanding of leaving during the exodus so quickly, their dough did not have a chance to rise. So don't put any yeast in it. Make dough. It's hardy. It's firm. Yeast, uh, while it brings dough to rise, it also decays much more quickly because that's what yeast is. It's decayed dough. It's fermented dough that gets mixed in, and then the whole thing rises. It's got nice taste, but it gets stale really quickly. Okay? So yeast in the Bible is actually used to talk about things that are destructive, often talked about to compare to sin, something that kind of destroys. You know, a little, a little yeast, you know, a little leaven um, affects the whole batch, right? It's the idea that a little, a little sin in somebody's life can destroy their, who they are. It can take over. It can, it can wreak havoc in their lives. So, what on earth is Jesus doing using an image? And he even said, like, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, all this stuff. Like, look out for this kind of destructive nature that can easily take over. So what's Jesus doing with this? Well, maybe, maybe, um, oh, by the way, Jesus being called the bread of the world, or um, the bread of life, like unleavened bread, Jesus was without sin. Like, get that? That's, that, that was all a part of the understanding of Jewish people. That's just a freebie. Okay, so... Is Jesus turning this thing totally on its head? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, perhaps Jesus is actually saying that when God's kingdom takes root, it affects the entire religious systems that people have learned to rely on. They're going to break down because the message of Jesus is, uh, is, is going to make religious systems redundant because love wins and grace becomes available to everybody and, and there's no need to constantly re-up. You can live free now and religion often binds us and ties us up if we look at it in the most negative, negative expressions. And of course, secondly, unsurprisingly, when God's heart captures another heart, that spark just keeps working its way out and expanding to new encounters and moving, moving through as people share life together, right? It just, all it takes is just a little of the spirit to change the whole batch of dough. So there's a more typical interpretation. Uh, but we've got one more question with this story, and I think a few of you noticed it because I saw your eyes when I read it. Any, any notes about the last sentence? 60 pounds! Who bakes with 60 pounds of flour? Now normally it says three measures. This is a modern, this, they, they, uh, this, this interpretation helps us understand what we might have other, otherwise missed. Normally it says who took three measures of flour, and we, none of us would bat an eye, except that three, three measures of flour is like three bushels of flour. And this is, this is non-negotiable. This is definitely what we're talking about here. 60 pounds of flour. Who on earth bakes that much dough? It's almost as if she's not just baking for herself, right? There's only one other place in the Bible that this phrase, this exact same word-for-word -word phrase is used, which is the exact phrase is three measures or three ephah, um, or an ephah, I think. I'm not very good at Jewish measurement systems. But anyways, the exact same phrase is used one other time in the Bible in Genesis 18. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, Abraham is traveling, and he's traveling with his wife Sarah, and uh, they receive three visitors who represent the, the Spirit of God coming to meet him. 
okay? And when the three visitors come, uh, Abraham sees them in the distance and somehow he knows that they represent God or something like that, but he runs over to them and he, he kind of falls on his, on his face and he offers, you know, Abraham's classic hospitality, okay? So he says, come, stay with me. I'll get you things to drink. I'll get you something to eat. And he runs over to Sarah, his wife, and he says, he hurried into the tent, quick, get three seahs, which is the, the same phrase, of the finest flour and knead it and <laughs> bake some bread. Quick, he says, can you throw together? I read, I read a commentary that said if a woman had written that part of the story, you bet they would have included the retort from, from Sarah after, after her husband comes in and says, hey, can you, we've got some visitors. Can you quickly just whip up like 60 loaves? I'm, I'm sure she told him what she'd be happy to whip up. Um, but anyway, so in this moment, okay, it's the same phrase. You, you have to understand Jewish uh, how Jewish people think and how Jesus thought. Like everything Jesus said was dripping with a knowledge of the Old Testament. Everything. This was their math book. This was their science book. This was their literature book. What you did to learn was you grew up learning the scriptures. So every time that there's an overlap, you can guess or you can bet that it wasn't, it didn't go over people's heads, okay? So why does that matter at all? It matters because in the midst of this, um, in the midst of, of this, uh, I overestimate on food, by the way, too, when I'm planning. So um, I'm not sure. I mean, he had, just, he had just circumcised a whole bunch of people, so like he might have not been in a great headspace at the moment and thinking clearly. Um, we don't know. But anyways, uh, maybe he's just overly excited. But what happens right after that is there's this radical hospitality given, and then they convey the message that Sarah is going to have a miraculous birth at 90 years old. Okay, she's going to get a bun in the oven. Right? So, so, so we've got this, this story unfolding. There's hospitality, there's bread to bake, and there's this miraculous seed that's been planted in Sarah, this growing promise of God's faithfulness, community, compassion, the Spirit. So Jesus tells us now, back to, back to this moment, there we go, that's, that's not even 60 loaves, so just get, a, get an idea of this woman's kitchen that we're entering when Jesus tells this story, okay? Um, there we go. Uh, so, so Jesus brings us into the world of this woman and, and says um, that she's baking away like Sarah thousands of years earlier, loaf after loaf that have been given the smallest little miracle that spread throughout the whole bread. This woman's not just baking for her kids. She's getting ready to throw a party, right? Many parties. <laughs> you know, she's going to be able to share so much, maybe give it away on the street, Maybe invite people in. What, what images these are of God's kingdom? They should inspire us. They should inspire us to think about how this looks in real life. She wants to feed the world with what she's been given. These are all images. So what we have to do then is we have to say, how did Jesus then, if he said this is what the kingdom is like, how did Jesus actually manifest this stuff? How did, how did he live out the kingdom? He got people together. They did stuff. <laughs> they went places. They learned to live the priorities of Jesus together. And it spread. Jesus sums up the kingdom of God in the two greatest commandments in Matthew 22. He says, God's kingdom is the place where people love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And secondly, it's a place where they love their neighbors as themselves. 
Loving God, loving others. That is what it looks like to live as God is king or to live with God as king, the kingdom of God. That's something that happens now and will happen forever for those who enter into that life. Um, Richard Rohr says that the kingdom of God can be summed up uh, based on Jesus' comments in the, the words union and communion. Union with God and communion with others. Coming together with God communing in real relationships with others. I want to talk about, just for a minute, I want to talk about the church. To live for the kingdom of God will lead to real church community. As, as we see all through the New Testament, God wants to gather people together, okay, on earth who form a new society that makes his justice and peace and grace and love tangible. God wants to form a new society, a society where grace and discipleship and salvation spread from one life to another in really deep ways. Actually forming a society, just think about that for a moment, like woof, that's a big, that's a big ask. That's a, that's a scary task to form a society. And why is it so scary and big? Because it means that our lives are actually ordered around Jesus and one another rather than simply adding those things on. That becomes the center. It means that we have to retrain ourselves. Over and over again, we have to retrain ourselves um, about what it means to be the church, especially right now. Especially right now. We've got to retrain ourselves as we slowly move to the other side of the COVID crisis. There's been an unavoidable temptation, and please hear this without critique, but there has been an unavoidable uh, temptation to experience church as an event rather than as a society that is forming of love, encouragement, compassion, and justice during the pandemic, right? We've been isolated. We've been primarily meeting digitally for 13 months. It'll take time to simply learn how to be present again. And for some of you, like just to get geared up to start showing up for each other. We've developed habits. It's hard. But, but the most difficult part of our church may be even more difficult than that because the most difficult part isn't just showing up, it's actually reestablishing presence in each other's lives. Reestablishing presence in each other's lives. Some of you have been able to do that in bits and pieces during, during this time. Um, but for others, that is going to be a process that requires real intentionality, real perseverance in the coming weeks and months. Um, for some of you, it'll be the first time that you've ever done this. Like truly said, what does it look like to be a presence in other lives of brothers and sisters? To form a society where God is king um, within, within this, this little slice of the kingdom that we have here within Life Path Church. Um, for others, it'll be embracing something that maybe during this whole time um, you've been forced out of the habit of doing. Here's the key, though. Here's the key. You will only be able, only be able to do the work of moving toward face-to-face relationships again, real face-to-face relationships, if you actually believe that that's what the church is. If you believe that's what the church actually is. Remember how at the beginning of the passage, I, I mentioned how Jesus was in the process of shifting the center of religious activity from the temple to kind of the, uh, the daily moments of life with Jesus, right? Um, that is still what Jesus is calling us to do. If you think that this right here, what we're doing at this exact moment, 
if you, if you think that this is church, that this religious activity, and I know we're not that religious, but if this religious activity is the center, okay, um, then what's going to happen is that you're going to just be happy to end up going to a church service again on the other side of this. That's what's going to happen. You'd be really happy. But here's the thing. You likely won't be transformed very much over the years. Seriously. We can have a killer church service. We can have good teaching. We can have meaningful worship. But I mean, there's actually studies that have been done on this. <laughs> Great church experiences. How much has your life changed in 10 years? Have you grown more like Jesus? The answer has overwhelmingly been no. People might think better, but being truly transformed that can only happen on its greatest level with face-to-face -face relationships and Jesus at the center. And this supports all of that. But if we get into the mindset that sitting, this is face um, by face, right? This isn't face to face. I mean, it's face to face with me, but I'm not currently in relate, not, not at this moment, in relationship with you. You can have face to face right before we meet out there or in here afterwards a little bit. But what we're doing right now is face face by face. And so, so the, the whole point of this next season is going to be to try to figure out what does it look like for us to really move into the fullest expression of the church. Yes, celebrating what God is doing here, but then for the other six and 23, 24ths of the week, figuring out what real relationships look like that point each other towards Jesus, because that is how you'll walk away transformed as a disciple. There's no other way. That's why Jesus invited people to come and be with him. That's why Jesus didn't say, hey, Saturday night, 8 o'clock, I'll be standing on that rock. He did that with the crowds, but that's not where the discipleship movement started. Did you notice that? At the end of, the, at the end of all of his amazing teaching, at the end of it all, the discipleship movement started with those who were walking around with him. The numbers vary, whether it was that 12 or 72 or 120. But it was a small group. He had thousands at one point for real. So the point is that transformation, these movements happen starting small, but with the Spirit of God at the center. Real relationships, and they grow. Oh, it's, it's so beautiful when we get that, the kingdom taking root in our gardens, in our kitchens, in our backyards, in the parking lots, the kingdom taking root on our cell phones, texting encouragements, praying together, whatever that looks like, it is so difficult, but it's the calling that we've been given. It's impossible to do this without actually moving toward a society. Um, you can't do it just by doing a religious activity at the center. So that shared journey, and it's not just because Jesus told us to love one another. It's what happens when we, when we start loving one another. We, we change the way we see each other. You know, the best way to be trained as a disciple is learning to love the people right in front of you. So you want to become a better disciple? Get more people in front of you that give you opportunities to love. And you will learn and we will grow together. Um, I've been trying to look ahead to some honest reflections here as, as um, your pastor, and I do not know what this next season holds for us as a church. I'm super tired. I want to have fresh vision, but I don't know what it's going to look like. It hasn't come as quickly and easily. I don't know what programs are going to be the best ones to do. I don't know exactly all the steps that we need to take. Um, it's, it's just one of those seasons. But here's what I know. Whatever we do, it has to be founded on face-to-face -face relationships with Jesus at the center. It has to. It has to. Otherwise, whatever we create in this next season of life path is not 
is not worth multiplying. So, as we walk forward, that's going to require all of us together. It's going to require everybody saying, what does it look like for me to love the person in front of me? What does it look like for me to enter into real face-to-face -face relationships once again, even though that might be hard, it might be awkward, it might be difficult, you know, um, but we're going to do it. The, the small moments of kind of mustard seed taking root, person to person, neighborhood to neighborhood, um, it's, it's going to change. It's going to change our world. It's always been the way of Jesus. So I encourage you to, to embrace it um, as well. Um, when we do that, those un almost unnoticeable moments of starting to re-enter into real regular connection with each other, that's going to yield kind of loaf after loaf <laughs> of, of bread that is valuable and edible for the world around us to be shared. Compassion, community, hospitality, these things will all come when we start to reconnect if we're intentional. So, um, those little moments... God will transform and bring into something bigger. Uh, so how will you answer the question today is, is the question. Now Jesus has asked, he's, he said, what's the kingdom like? And then he said, let me give you an example. And now we sit here with all of that information as people who know Jesus, and we say, what does that sort of kingdom look like in our lives? Think of real life images right now that come to your mind as you consider taking hold of that kingdom, taking hold of it and using it. If you understand the passage correctly, on some level it's going to look like hospitality, compassion, face-to-face -face moments that open up new doors to God's heart. So maybe this week you take a hard step and you show up. We've been talking about these for a little while. You show up to a yard circle. They're meeting. There's one tonight. There's two tomorrow. There's one on Thursday. And you just say, I'm going to be present. I'm going to do it. Maybe you invite someone out to coffee or to go for a walk. Maybe you make one little step to reach out to somebody who might be struggling, or maybe you bake more bread than your family can eat, just so that you have to figure out how to share it somehow. What might it look like for you? I invite you to live this week as if you're spreading God's love like mustard seed being planted in a garden, knowing that if you do it, it'll get multiplied, or like kneading dough full of yeast knowing that it's going to spread and it's going to shift the center from religious activities to the beauty of Christ-founded relationships. All right, let's pray. Jesus, help us to be changed by you. Uh, this, is, this is hard if we're really honest with it. Uh, the, the, the kingdom, Lord, is so, is, is so big. It's, it's this, this, this life that's beyond us individually. It's a, it's a whole world where you reign over all of us and we, we need your clarity and we need your help. But specifically, we need you to help us walk toward one another as uh, subjects in this kingdom, but also children of the king. What a, beautiful, what a beautiful image, Lord. So help us gain clarity on what it looks like to live in union with you and in communion with one another as we walk forward this week. Amen.